Hello, filmmakers. You're very welcome to another episode of F&I Rap Chat. Um, so this week we have got Nuala O'Connor and Jeremy Farrader on to talk about their film Keepers of the Flame, uh, which is still currently in the IFI and hopefully uh, we'll get another week or so as a run. Um, it's a really, really great documentary about the legacy of uh, the revolutionary period Um the archive uh, from the military pension scheme. Um, it's a really well put together film, uh, very emotive. Uh, it's got a beautiful soundtrack and score by um, Colin McNamara, and uh, it's just a, a wonderful piece of work. So I definitely encourage you to go and see it if you can. Um, we also have our quiz for FNI this week, uh, Beard Runner. Um, so that is on Wednesday. Uh, if you can come down to the uh, Grand Social from about 7 o'clock uh, it should be a, a really really fun night and a bit of networking and a bit of uh, crack and a chance to get some really good prizes from some really really great companies um, so yeah we will go to Nuala O'Connor and Dermot Ferder I'd like to welcome Nuala O'Connor and Dermot Ferder to the studio. Thanks so much for coming in. You're welcome. <laughs> um, I'll start with just kind of a slightly philosophical question about film and history. And uh, I think you might have different angles on this on kind of the relationship between history and film and what film's role is and uh, how important it is to get things right when it comes to documentary and history. Well, that could take up a whole podcast <laughs> yeah. um, because film is history in yeah. a way. And so we made this documentary, which is going to be is going to is is is, if you like, an account of people's lives at a certain time in a certain place. But maybe 40 years from now, our film will be part of another account of another time in another place. You yeah. know, so it's it's. Um, it's a very dialectical kind of process um, and it's just an interpretation, um, a, a, an account, a narrative for now. Um, and obviously film is part of, it, it, it's kind of par part of the historical process as it goes on, but it is also a recorder of, of, of the historical process. So um, whatever way you look at it, it's it's a cent it's in our day and age absolutely front and center you know and I can't think of anything that could happen now without film being involved it's just as simple as that yeah. so um, you know once upon a time it was monks in the scriptorum I suppose you know with their vellum and their quills and now it's film yeah Dermot what would your take be on that well, I've always been interested in how historians used television and how television used historians, going back to um, the beginnings of television in Britain and then extension to Ireland in the early 1960s. And there were what we were, would consider very conservative formats now. You know, you'd have the talking heads yeah. um, and you might have studio discussions. And there, there was a tradition of, of uh, some Irish historians uh, essentially doing lectures on screen. Yeah. 
I don't think there's anything wrong with that, you yeah. know. Um, and some of the old ways of doing things are actually quite attractive yeah. in terms of the communication that's involved. Um, but what's been fascinating for me over the last 15 or 20 years is to look at how the approaches to communicating history publicly have, have changed mm. and, and the different formats that can be used and the different styles of communicating what is in an archive. Um, there were, are a lot of people I've encountered over the years who, who would immediately say, oh, what, you know, dusty files, how can you bring them to life or how yeah. can you bring them to screen? And the answer, of course, is especially in the hands of someone like Newell is um, there's an awful lot you can do with them yeah. and you can be very creative with them. Uh, for me, the power of the personal testimony is what drives my approach to history and that lends itself very well to filmmaking and yeah. to documentary making yeah. because people are fundamentally interested in, in the human stories and uh, this archive that we've been working with for this Keepers of the Flame documentary is full of these personal accounts and, yeah. and the personal testimonies. So the challenge was to to find a spine, yeah. you know, to, to build the documentary around uh, certain major uh, themes. Um, but that's only part of it. The other part of it is, as Nunes says, what we're actually involved in doing ourselves, what's involved in the process of memory and, and, and communicating um, the, the the keeping of the flame. Mm. Uh, how do people keep stories alive? How do they remember very personal um, histories? And how do people forget them? Yeah. Uh, or, or in a lot of cases, we're not told about them in the first place. So the, the archive is is, is is a part of us learning about very very private, intimate family histories, as well as being part of a national narrative which is about the revolution and the post-revolution life. So for me, you know, the philo philosophical challenge is, yeah. is, is to marry those two approaches, you know, yeah. so that you have the personal human stories illuminating these much wider themes that are relevant to all of us. Um, could you just tell us a bit about how the project came into being? Well, we, Gerbert and I had done a three-part series for a history series for television called yeah. The Limits of Liberty, which really looked at the um, the exercise distribution and conflicts around power in the Irish state. In other words, what kind of power structures the Irish state put in place after the War of Independence, after the Free State was established. And um, while we were doing that, um, or maybe it was just at the end of that, that went out in 2009, Dermot can correct me on the date here, but the this this massive archive, the it sounds so dry, the uh, military pension service archive, yeah. um, was being worked on by the archivists. Um, initially, just putting this massive collection together, it was filthy, rat infested, you know, badly stored, damp, in need of physical rehabilitation before anything could happen to it, and then there had been a tremendously successful exercise with the census online and uh, we have Katrina Crow really to thank for the pushing of that project forward. So Irish people we knew were there, they were the uptake on the census online access was phenomenal yeah. and we like Katrina would, would have been aware that um, there was more stuff out there yeah. um, and one one of them was this big archive which is just unique yeah. um, and which because the people were applying for pensions in relation to what they had done in 1916 the War of Independence and the Civil War more importantly um, it 
and because the pension files ran for the lifetime of the person who received the pension, so there are long files that end with the person's life or their dependent's life, um, there was a whole account of Irish life in there um, that had to do with their take on what had happened in Irish history at a crucial time. So um, Dermot, I remember him telling me about this archive um, just as we were finishing The Limits of Liberty and saying something like, that'll be, that'll be worth looking into or something like yeah, that. And that's yeah, yeah. where it started. Okay. And then he can take the story up from there because he then went into the archive with some other historians for a first kind of bite of the cherry. Well, we were asked to advise the archivists um, about how they should approach yeah. the context for this material. Uh, part of what we're doing in the documentary is actually telling the story of the archive itself. As yeah. Neil says, you know, how does an archive uh, uh, come into being and how does it come into the public domain? Because yeah. this is a national archive, you know, yeah. it belongs to all of us. Um, and, and the state holds custody of it on our behalf. Um, so th- this is about public ownership yeah. uh, and making this archive uh, publicly accessible. And the, you know, the, the, when we went in there initially, what I didn't appreciate was the sheer enormity of it because, you know, to give you a potted summary of what was involved in this process, this began in the 1920s when the government decided that they're going to make pensions available for people who've been wounded um, initially as a result of the conflict, but then extended to people who've had what they called active service. And gradually it's extended over the decades to apply to uh, larger groups of people. Um, and it uh, it becomes a, a national pensions process yeah. overseen by a, an army pensions board. It's very was, bureaucratic. And, yeah. you know, an, an awful lot of people uh, apply and are not successful. The bar is set very high. You have to have proved active service. You have to have references. You But there's a huge amount of paperwork that goes along yeah. with that. But you also have people explaining the material circumstances that they find themselves in, yeah. uh, as well as people complaining bitterly that their their contribution to the revolution and to Ireland has not been adequately recognised. So it's a great chronicle of disappointment um, as well as being a a very detailed overview of what people did because you you had to account for everything and these were, you know, overseers or arbiters uh, in uh, the Department of Defence who were not going to award any soft pensions so the more detail, the better. And we have all that detail now. But we didn't appreciate the normality but to try and put context on it, you know, what does it tell us? Yeah. And the answer yeah. to that question, uh, part of it, of course, is in the film. Yeah. Uh, it depends on so many different individual circumstances and family circumstances. Uh, but it's also about um, stories that were buried because a lot of the detail that's in the archive is is not necessarily material that was being publicly communicated or even privately communicated. A lot of families didn't talk about this stuff. Yeah. They didn't want to reopen wounds or it was too difficult, or they didn't want to pass on uh, the, uh, the the bitterness of that period, uh, particularly with the Civil War. Whereas those voices are speaking to us now. Yeah. And they are really underlining that some did very well out of the revolution. Most did not. Yeah. And that in itself is a question that we really have to confront 100 years after the end of the Civil War. Yeah. What was it all for? Yeah. And in terms of... So you had to communicate what this documentary was going to be about to various funders uh, and we're kind of coming hot on the heels of a lot of kind of centenary uh, celebrations and that from 1916. So how did you communicate the core idea of this and how it would stand out from other documentaries? Well, there were two things really. One was the archive itself to us was 
just a story that it was it was a unique and universal story. Uh, a lot of countries have had wars, a lot have had civil wars. And here we were with an account of what it was like to go through that, come out the other side, live for 30 or 40 years. And then we were able to pick up on the relatives of the people whose lives had been changed forever, even at third generation distance yeah. from those events. That was that was number one. And I suppose number two was that it, it insofar as one can ever do this, it, it, it is ground up stories of ordinary people in the now who were dealing with issues of memory, commemoration and remembrance. So we have commemoration, as Dermot said, on a national level and we're coming up to a civil war commemoration. We knew that the 2016 and subsequent years would be sort of plain sailing in one way because we wouldn't be dealing with divisions and yeah. we're talking about divisions, silences, uh, confusion, people not knowing exactly why conflicts, what the conf nature of the conflict was within the family and so on. So we, we knew that there were marvellous stories there and that in some ways they would be, they would help towards uh, coming at uh, a, a version or a way of commemorating that wasn't celebrating which the 2016 was. Yeah. It was a celebration of independence. It was our Independence Day. Yeah. So this can't be seen like that. You cannot yeah. celebrate a civil war. No. You just can't do that. So yeah. what are we going to do? So um, it, I think we, 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 we definitely made a lot of that. And, and these are the grandchildren, great-grandchildren. In one case, uh, one, a son of somebody who was involved you know, the, in, the, in the first generation whose life had been changed forever by what mm. his father had done. So, um, and the nature of the change and how it was lived out. So that's the case we made. Yeah. And you did a beautiful job of selecting characters um, and we kind of, you kind of revisit certain characters. Uh, was that difficult to whittle down to, you know, to kind of find the spine of the story and, and I'm sure you had to leave lots out. And what was that? Oh, hugely that? difficult. Yeah. And, and what Nuda did was, of course, uh, it, in terms of what was feasible, yeah. you have to begin tracking down the relatives and there's an awful lot of spade work involved in that and, yeah. and Nuda did that. Yeah. Um, and, and when you consider the power of the individual stories, that's one thing. But can you find family members who are going to talk about it, the keepers of the flame, yeah. as we have termed them, um, and that's where you discover people in various walks of life yeah. uh, who are connected. Um, but, you know, whether they're going to want mm. to talk about it or be part of this kind of process, because, again, these are very difficult stories for a lot of people. One of the stories we explore um, is that of the Trainer family. Uh, Thomas Trainer was executed as an IRA man. Uh, during the War of Independence, and he left a widow and ten children. Elizabeth Trainer was his widow, um, and she was awarded a pension, awarded a pension of 17 shillings, six pence a week, as the widowed mother of ten children. That in itself um, is, you know, is, is fascinating. Yeah. But to then track down the relatives, and we were able to talk to a grandson mm -hmm. of Elizabeth yeah. uh, Trainer, who, who Nula would have found, and he got very emotional actually talking about not just rediscovering the story yeah. of his grandfather. He actually says at one stage, well, it was easy for him. He was executed. He, he, got he cleared off. Shot, yeah. He got himself shot. Yeah. Uh, but my 
yeah. grandmother was left to carry the can. But yeah. there's also a great sense of betrayal because Elizabeth Trainer feels, uh, and she, the way she puts it is, my husband died under false pretenses. There are killer lines yeah. in some of these letters. Yeah. My husband died. This is what I've been left with. Yeah. I cannot feed my family on 17 shillings and sixpence uh, a week. Why have I been left in yeah. such abject circumstances when my husband and by extension my family have made the ultimate sacrifice for Irish independence? So you have those very, very difficult situations. Yeah. Um, so it really was yeah. about Nuala finding those individuals. I found another relative uh, of the trainer family and she told me that she lived with her grandmother, uh, that woman, and the um, at one stage her her granny was writing letters to Dev, um, because he was the commanding officer of the of her of of her husband, uh, in Boland's Mills. Anyway, Dev called to the house one day in in a in a state car, like uh, to to visit Mrs. Trainer, and um, this relative said to me, um, "What I said? What came of that?" And she said, "Nothing." All he left was a bag of apples for the children. Right. And so I was ho- this image of the bag of yeah, apples. Yeah. I, I couldn't fit it in anywhere. Yeah. And then um, I just said to, to uh, Colm, uh, like, uh, the cameraman, Colm Hogan, I, I, I want to film apples. I don't know why exactly, but, you know, they're in my head. And uh, because that relative wouldn't do an interview. Yeah. So I couldn't impose the story on anybody else. It was her, hers alone. Anyway, we, 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 we filmed this orchard um, with fallen apples. And in the end, it just worked uh, with another letter from somebody else yeah. written by uh, uh, another another relative of somebody else. Yeah. And there was something very autumnal and melancholy mm. or something about the whole way the thing had worked out for this particular man yeah. and he was living in England and he was far away now and he was not in good health and so on and there was something just it just worked yeah. I can't tell you why yeah. but it just worked yeah. so there are things that you do and it's just you know going through trying to move furniture in a room in the dark or something yeah. and just sort of yeah. feel it into mm. position you know and yeah. those kind of things um, But it's also to yeah. get the some of the correspondence Narrate it, and for people to see it, yeah. and the texture of it, yeah. the power of the handwritten letter, yeah. beautiful handwriting yeah. that you yeah. don't see anymore. Yeah. People yeah. don't communicate like that anymore. And the vast majority of these letters are not being written by educated people mm. because these were people who had to leave school yeah. uh, after their their primary education. But they can be extraordinarily articulate and and dignified, and often yeah. uh, very annoyed about things. Yeah. And almost but, poetic. Was that yes. common? Yeah. yeah, but th- there are just lines that jump out at you. There yeah. was one particular individual now whose son had been injured in 1916 during the Rising. He was fighting with the Irish Citizen Army. Um, and this was devastating for the family. And, and eventually he dies in 1919 and the father then looks for support from the state. And he just wrote to the Department of Defence, my boy, my boy was sent home to me a wreck. That's less than 10 words. But think of what is at the core of it. The youth of this boy. He was a boy. And so many of them were boys and girls. They were very, very young. What it means for the family. Have they been a breadwinner in the family? Uh, What's the trauma that's internalised in a lot of cases. There's an awful lot of trauma and emotion in, in, in this archive. So, you know, even some... And these are not household names. I mean, there are some well-known individuals who we discuss and relatives of well-known individuals. But we were also very interested in people who are not household names because this, uh, the the vast majority of cases in this archive, 
they're not the leaders. They're not the elite. They're not the household names. Yeah. They're the rank and file. Yeah. And how that rank and file uh, and their families deal with the enormity of what has happened to them. Um, and as Nuala says, it can last for decades. Yeah. And I think that's what makes this film so un- unique in that you have blended the historical accounts with the personal accounts. Is there a certain kind of duty of care to your subjects then and how did you approach the interviews? Yeah, and some of them hadn't read the files. Right. They hadn't read their relatives' files. So that was an interesting one. You almost feel, you know, you you have information that they don't actually have necessarily. Um, So, and thank God there was no GDPR. I mean, this would not be possible in a GDPR regime at all because I presume you just couldn't give out this level of mm. detail about names, yeah. um, you know, personal details Data. and so on. Yeah. So, um, And of course, as Dermot says, people don't write letters anymore and they don't have to write into departments with, and yeah. those letters wouldn't be read if they did. Yeah. So um, what an archive would look like in 40 years from now in a similar situation is unknown. You know, I mean, it, it just wouldn't be as rich or as profound or as deep, uh, I think, because... Um, uh, you know, people don't have the same kind of uh, approach to their own material even, mm. I think, you know. Um, and also, these people were writing, as they thought, privately. They never, ever thought for one minute that, you know, 80 years later, along we would come and Aidan Gillen would be reading their letters. You yeah, know, that yeah, it, yeah. It, there's no self-consciousness there at all. They thought yeah. they were writing to an official and that... Yeah would go into a file and that would yeah. be it. And there, there is a, a difficult issue there. I mean, the way I've described it is that in, in many cases, private anguish is now becoming public property yeah. um, decades later. Um, and a, you have to be sensitive about this material. But at the same time, if we want to confront the reality of what was involved and what the legacy was, we do need to engage with these difficult subjects. As Nuala yeah. said, you know, we can talk about celebration. This isn't about... Uh, celebration. You know the way Todd Andrews described the Civil War, alas, there are no victors in Civil War, there are only monuments to the dead. Yeah. In some cases these letters are monuments to the dead. Yeah. Uh, but they're also about how people grapple uh, with very, very uh, personal uh, difficulties and, and, and traumas and th- there was another case that really struck me as being tragic which is Delia Begley was her name and again she wouldn't be well known at all but she was active in coming the man Mm. in Clare and she she had a breakdown and she ended up in the care of the Sisters of Charity and the Reverend Mother eventually ends up writing to the pensions board saying this woman is destitute she did her utmost for her country uh, when when it was needed she showed great courage and she is now she now has nothing and even her own relatives don't want to know Um, so you know those kind of cases that you know, remind you of, again, going back to this question of power and how power is distributed and who has the power and, you know, what what side of the tracks do people end up on? Yeah. But but also that theme of, of people's lives spiralling out of control. You know, some people hit the bottle yeah. after this period. They were, they were young and a lot of them were, were traumatised. Like, we have a language for it now, yeah. a medical language for it, post-traumatic stress disorder, for example. Yeah. Um, and, you know... The, in some cases, people were diagnosed with specific yeah. difficulties arising out of this period and, and ending up in asylums mm. uh, and ending up in, in what were uh, mental institutions. Yeah. Um, and 
you know, you can trace yeah. those stories because you actually have the medical reports from the time because if a pension application was being made yeah. on their behalf, there had to be supporting documentation. Yeah. Particularly if they were, neurasthenic was the term they used then for what we now call post-traumatic stress. Yeah. Um, so if they had, if they fell into that category, then there there were very few actually. I didn't come across many, yeah. um, many files like that because, of course, people didn't want yeah. to know yeah. about that. That was a whole other, you know, uh, area which people did not want to go near. Yeah. And the other thing, of course, is that people had different reactions. So that there's one person who's in the file uh, has a pension file who was so traumatised by um, an event that he was involved in, which involved uh, the assassination of some British officers, um, that he he was never sane again. Yeah. And then somebody else who was so hard-nosed about it that was able to, 50 years later with RTE, do a reenactment <laughs> of of what he did on the that day. The same event. Yeah. The same event. Yeah. Wow. It was it was the the famous um, Bloody Sunday. Yeah, yeah. morning. Right. Yeah. You know, in Leeson Street. Yeah. And so this one young lad, seventeen, eighteen years of age, absolutely, you know, traumatized for life. Yeah. And then this other fella, Halen Harty, at whatever age he was, yeah. seventy five, going down up Leeson Street, and we did this, and then I plugged him. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's it, it, yeah. What you know? What can you say except yeah. that's the human. You know, and condition. of course, there's a film connection there because th- that was Charlie Dalton uh, and his brother, Emmett Dalton, who was also involved uh, at the time. And, you know, em- Emmett built a very successful uh, career eventually. Yeah. When as he a got film over producer. As a film started producer. Ardmore. And he started the oh, Ardmore yeah. Studios. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but people, and he lived until the 1970s. Yeah. Um, and people were always after him because he was with Michael Collins. Yeah. When Michael Collins was shot. He, Michael Collins actually died in his lap. Right. And he'd already witnessed the Battle of the Somme he was still only in his early 20s. Wow. Um, and of course, he went on to have this career and people were always at him to reenact yeah. uh, or to get involved in a documentary on the killing of Michael Collins. And he was having none of it. You know, he was yeah. the keeper of the flame uh, of Collins. Um, but he also would have applied for a pension. And he's struggling in the 1920s because whatever yeah. about what he went on to do subsequently. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a period there for a lot of people where they don't know what their future is going to be. I think one of the themes, and we interviewed uh, Cormac O'Malley, mm. who's the son of Ernie O'Malley. And of course, Ernie O'Malley wrote beautifully about the War of Independence period, but he was hugely damaged by it yeah. and traumatised by it, and physically and mentally. Uh, and Cormac describes a childhood with a father who has not lived a normal uh, mm. youth, you know. And, yeah. and, and as he put it, these were the best years of their life and they spent it on the bloody run, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and that has long-term consequences both for parents and for children and there can be difficulties in relationships and all uh, and all that yeah uh, but you know describing um the difficulty of coping with the aftermath the way ernie o'malley wrote about it he said we had built this life of our own but we didn't have any economic or social framework yeah you know we were used to being on the run being uh, ira volunteers yeah. nobody had given much thought to what comes after and of course, some fare okay. Yeah. Some do very well. Yeah. But then there are others who just get lost. Yeah. And in terms of the film, uh, what were the main challenges or maybe unforeseen challenges? Or if there was advice that you could give to yourselves before you started on this journey, what would that be? <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> um, 
I, I suppose the the main challenge I think was in the edit actually, not in the shooting of it. I mean, the material was fantastic. Yeah. Um, the archive turned out to be visually so attractive or something, you know, yeah. and it was um, what you what what I wanted and from it as a film was a, a a tone and a register that was kind of that of somebody remembering you know so that it would be breathing it wouldn't wouldn't be wouldn't be wham bam kind of ev, ev, uh, triggered by events you know moving forward like that kind of narrative that it would be um reflective and so on and it's actually hard to do that because it's going to last 86 minutes, so you, you don't want everybody fast asleep at the end of it, you know. So you, you, yeah. it, it's the engine of the narrative was the thing. Um, and so that, that, that was difficult. That, that yeah. The edit was hard yeah. and the first cut was three hours long and it wasn't clear. And then marrying the actual sort of, if you like, fact-based material that needed to be it, we needed to frame the story and we needed to tell people what this archive was yeah. and the way to do that. And we had various formats, actually, but in the end, Dermot was, if you like, the witness for that. Yeah. And we... Rather we, than the voice of God. <laughs> the <laughs> exactly. voice of God narration, yeah. Yeah. which is another style, yeah. of course, yeah. that yeah. you yeah. could take. Yeah. So we, 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 you know, we changed that. I think Neil is absolutely right about tone. OK. That's crucial. Because partly because of what we've been talking about and the sensitivity uh, and personal nature of the material that you're dealing with, yeah. um, the tone is crucial. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, uh, of course, you, you want there to be moments of colour, perhaps even moments of humour. Yeah. Um, but because there, there always should be. Yeah. Because they are part of life too. Yeah. But getting the right tone, uh, striking the right tone, you've also got to stop looking at the files because you could go on and on and on and on. If you're dealing with an archive on that scale, it becomes quite addictive. Does, I think Nula yeah. found this. <laughs> yeah. You know, it becomes I'd be, addictive. I'd be still in there reading right. those files. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I shouldn't forget is Colin McAnumber's score Beautiful. because yeah. um, he was, um, he straddled so many different um, genres of mm. music for starters. He's And he's an Irish speaker. And he he was very taken with the actual story, and he can do he can do you know film soundtrack in his sleep, but also and he can orchestrate and he can he can arrange, yeah. but also he was able to put he was very sympathetic in the kind of airs and you know the harmonic accompaniment to that he was completely I thought sympathetic yeah. all the way through you know. Um, so I, that really added to the effect, you know, of the reflectiveness of the piece. Uh, well, I, we're kind of short on time now, so I'd just like to congratulate you, both of you on making such a beautiful and important film. Sometimes when we say important, it's shorthand for boring, but it definitely wasn't boring. It's a great piece of work. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Did you ever dream of being a perfect Wakefield twin? Let us show you what a terrible idea that is. I'm Anna Carey. I'm Karen Moynihan. And on Double Love, we take you through the strange and terrifying world of classic 80s teen book series Sweet Valley High, book by book. Join us every second Thursday for a new episode. Looking in.